Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. My name is John Whitaker. I'm the host and creator of the Bible in Life, and I am glad you're joining me on this episode. I'm grateful to those of you who are part of the Bible in Life family. If this is your first time listening to the Bible in Life podcast, welcome. Glad you are here. I hope you find uh, this podcast to be a, really helpful to your walk with God and your discipleship to Jesus. My whole heart in this is really what the title says, to teach the Bible in such a way that we can set it down in the midst of everyday life and then figure out how to live it out right there in the midst of everyday life. And so that's our goal on this. I'd like to refer to that as Blue Jeans Theology. And before we jump into the content for this episode, I just want to make sure if you haven't heard, I have a free ebook on my website called Bible and Life, same name as the podcast. And it is a guide to how to really dig into the Bible and understand it and apply it to your life. It's 10 really practices for hearing and heeding the Bible in the midst of your everyday life. So that's completely free. All you got to do is go over to my website, johnwhitaker.net, and scroll down just a little bit. You'll see the title there, the book cover there. Just put in your name, your email address, and you will get access to that book. So if that sounds like something that would be useful to you, you might swing over and check that out. All right. On this episode, I just have three questions that have come in from listeners to the podcast that uh, I wanted to take some time to address on this particular episode. And so a little bit of question and response here. Three very different kinds of questions, uh, good questions, um, and I just want to reflect on those with you on this particular episode. So the first question um, comes in from a, a longtime listener and supporter of the work. And the question, actually, she says, comes from a long-standing discussion between my cousin and I. And she wants to know, here's the question, can believers who are already dead and with Jesus be able to see things on earth? That's the question. Can believers who have died see what is happening on earth? That's a good question. I'm not so sure I know the answer to it. Uh, that is a challenging one. I don't know that we have tons of clarity on that in the New Testament. And so I could be wrong, but my feeling is I'm not sure. But even though I'm not 100% certain, there is an interesting passage in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6. And in the scene painted in Revelation chapter 6, you have some martyrs, that is Christians who have been killed for their faith, and they are at least aware of what's going on on earth. Let me read this to you. Revelation 6, and beginning in verse 9, it says this, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So John is seeing a vision, and in this vision, he sees the lamb, who represents Jesus, breaking seals on a scroll. And so when he breaks the fifth seal, he sees a picture of martyrs, Christians who have been killed for their faith, and they're underneath the altar in this sort of heavenly temple area. That's the scene. And here's what happens. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants 
and their brothers and sisters who were to be killed, even as they had, would be completed also. Now, not a whole lot of detail, but in some way, they are aware of what is going on on earth. So that, that suggests that maybe, maybe there's at least some awareness of what is going on on earth. The problem is, this is the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is notoriously difficult to interpret. And it uses picture language for, for the messages trying to communicate. And so are we to take this scene literally? And is it intended to give us information about the way things actually work in heaven right now? Or is it a picture of this main truth that is being made about them waiting and resting in purity in white robes while they wait for God to, to finally decide enough's enough, and then he will avenge all the blood of his saints. And so I'm not sure if we should use this to press exactly what life is like in heaven or not. I know Randy Alcorn in his book on heaven uses this passage to, to say that he thinks there's at least a, a level of awareness uh, in heaven for things going on on earth, and maybe so. I'm just not 100% certain. So I know that's not a great and satisfying answer, but that's where I'm at. There might be some hints and pointers and clues in the Bible that that maybe point that, ah, there might be some awareness. I'm just not uh, completely sure about it. All right. So <clears throat> hope that helps. Not really super solid on that one. All right. Next question. It's this, and it, this is a very challenging question, sensitive and difficult question. It's a question that not only has some biblical teaching behind it, but there's also needs to be some pastoral sensitivity to this question. So this, this person asks, you mentioned taking questions for your podcast. Here's my question. When is it okay for a divorced person to remarry? What if someone got divorced illegitimately and remarried someone else? Should they divorce then their current spouse? Thanks for all you're doing. And so that's the question. And like I said, that is a very difficult question because there's a lot of there's a lot of weight to it, emotional weight, relational weight. It's not just an analytical question from the text. This is hard, right? Um, and there's a lot of pain oftentimes involved with a question like this. And so um, I don't know the context in which the person who wrote this question asked it, but I've been a pastor long enough to know or to at least uh, to, to be able to guess what lies behind this. I've sat with enough people who are recently divorced, in the midst of a divorce, uh, wrestling with divorce. Uh, I know there's a great deal of pain in this, right? In fact, one time I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount has one of the passages in the New Testament about marriage and divorce in it, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. And I wanted to get some help on that message before I preached it. So I actually gathered together a handful of people in the congregation where I was preaching uh, before I ever did this and asked them to help me help me prepare for the sermon by sharing their story. These were all people who had experienced divorce. Some had been divorced and remarried. Some had not been remarried. And I wanted to invite them into the preparation for my message on that passage out of Matthew 5. And man, the stories they told, every single one of them, even those who, who were like, it was, it, was the, it was completely necessary. I had every biblical reason to do it, right? And yet they still would say, and yet it was one of the most painful things I've ever been through, and I would never wish that on anyone. 
And so I know that there's a, a lot of weight and a lot of sensitivity required when talking about this subject uh, because of my conversations with people, as well as the fact that my earliest childhood memory is the night my dad walked out on my mom. And I grew up for virtually my entire life without a father in the home. And so uh, this is a sensitive question. So here's, here's my thoughts. When is it okay for a divorced person to remarry? What if someone got divorced illegitimately and remarried someone else? Should they divorce their current spouse? First thing is we need to acknowledge that even when Jesus is asked about divorce and remarriage in the Gospels, Jesus immediately goes back to the very beginning. He goes back to Genesis 2 when God first invented and designed marriage. Jesus goes back there to say, okay, hold on, before we talk about um, marriage and broken marriages and remarriage in a post-fall you know, fall world, in a post-Eden world, living outside of Eden, right? Genesis 3, and we're now outside of Eden, and the world isn't the way God designed it, and it's broken, right? Jesus goes back to before that and says, in Genesis 2, when God first invented marriage, here's how it was supposed to work. And so there is um, a there is an ideal. God has a vision and an ideal for marriage, and it's a vision of unity and harmony and oneness um, that is painted there in uh, Genesis chapter two. And we need to remember that that's God's ideal, and that's why when I sit with people who are who have been divorced or are struggling with it, why there is so much heartache, why there is so much pain, right? No one um, stands up on their wedding day um, planning on getting divorced. It's just not the way it goes, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't figure, okay, well, this is good for about three to four months or this is good for about three to four years. We just don't do that. We, we want the best on our wedding day, right? God had a vision and a dream for that, and it's in some ways hardwired into our heart. So Jesus always goes back to Genesis 2 when he, he brings up, when the subject comes up. Um, and so he says, here's God's dream. Here's God's ideal. And so the problem is we live in a broken world, in a post-fall world where things don't always go the way God envisioned them. And so when Jesus is asked the question, he's addressing Jews, asking it in their Jewish context. So he immediately goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 3 to explain, well, where did divorce come from? And Deuteronomy 23, God makes an exception. And he does so to protect all the parties involved, especially the weaker parties involved who in the ancient Near East, when Deuteronomy was written, that was primarily the female. And so you have to give her a certificate of divorce, um, Deuteronomy 23 says. And it's not because divorce is okay or divorce is part of God's ideal, it's what God wants. It's because we need to make sure we, we do this in a way to protect the relevant parties involved. So Jesus comes at it from that perspective. Now, what Jesus says, particularly in places like Matthew chapter 5 or Matthew 19, is that um, <clears throat> Jesus believes that there is there should be no divorce, speaking to his original audience, except in a case of adultery. That He says, and the reason is because in his context, you had two schools of thought. You had one that was like, you can divorce a woman for any reason. And in his Jesus' cultural context, only the man could initiate divorce. And there was one school of thought was like, any reason. Uh, you don't like the way she looks anymore. Uh, you don't like the way she cooks. You don't like, right? Any reason, you can divorce her. 
So there was one school of thought that was easy divorce for any and every reason. And then there was a school of thought that was, no, um, marriage is sacred. Marriage creates such a deep human bond that just to trade in your spouse for any reason, that's not God's design. Jesus was in that camp. And so he's like, there needs to be significant reasons for it. And in his cultural context, the thing that Jesus points out is adultery. So you can read Matthew chapter 19, and you can hear what Jesus says there about that. Now, the Apostle Paul, in a later situation, um, addresses divorce and marriage and remarriage and several questions about all of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, questions that were written to him by the Corinthian church. And you can listen to my whole discussion of all of 1 Corinthians 7 and the details on what Paul says there about uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage. You can listen to that on the listener's commentary on 1 Corinthians 7. So that's available as well on your podcast app. And so if you look for the listener's commentary, you can scroll down until you find the episodes on 1 Corinthians 7, and you can check it out there. Um, But what Paul says in that case is, he says, you got two believers that are married, and he says, if they get... Uh, this is 10 and 11 of chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. He says they shouldn't get divorced. If they do separate, then they need to be reconciled rather than marry somebody else. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians seven eleven. Now, in verse 12 and following, he says, now, if it's a, a believer married to an unbeliever, right? In their situation, it would have been a believer, someone who just became a believer and their spouse did not. Well, now there's some questions they have about that. And Paul says, look, stay married to them. That, that doesn't taint you. That doesn't make you unholy. That doesn't make you unclean in any sort of way. In fact, you bring them into the realm of holiness. You bring sanctification and holy things into the home. Um, and so there's no need to worry about that. So stay married. But if the unbelieving spouse decides to leave, he says you're not bound in that matter. What he means by bound is you, you can, you're free to remarry. And so this tells us that, um, that there's more to it then what Jesus said in Matthew 19, um, we have different uh, situation in 1 Corinthians 7. Here's the problem. Our cultural context is different than both Jesus' context and the Corinthian context. And we don't have the apostles to totally clarify everything in our context. That makes it hard. So we have to wrestle with what Jesus said and what Paul said, uh, what Genesis 2 says, and try to figure all that out. So, with all of that context, to the question, when is it okay for a divorced person to remarry? Well, what Jesus says is when there's been adultery. What Paul says is when an unbelieving spouse leaves, then it's okay to get remarried. Um, Beyond that, we don't have a specific word on Scripture. And so we're going to have to wrestle. Are there other situations where the marriage covenant is broken? We're going to have to wrestle with that and try to think that through very carefully, very wisely. But those are the two specifically ones mentioned in the, in the Bible. Um, what if someone got divorced illegitimately and remarried someone else? Should they divorce their current spouse? And the answer to that is no, because the moment you remarried someone else, the previous marriage covenant is already broken anyhow. 
And so now the only covenant is with the spouse you're married to. And so you should stay married to that current spouse and you should seek in that current marriage to live out the Genesis 2 ideal to the best of your ability with the help of the Spirit and with the wisdom of God and with with God's grace to try to bring to life the unity and the oneness and the harmony that God first designed when he invented marriage as really a signpost to... Christ's love for the church, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. And so, no, if you, even if you got divorced illegitimately um, and remarried someone else, no, that's who you're married to. So stay married to that person. Um, now, I will say this. I, it disappoints me when I hear pastors say this or people who have given this impression that if they got divorced, even if they got divorced illegitimately, somehow they're, quote unquote, living in sin. The Bible never teaches that, never says that. So maybe uh, you divorce your spouse and you you really didn't have any good, legitimate biblical reasons. There was no adultery. There was no abandonment. There was no abuse. There was right none of those things. You had no good reasons to get divorced. Um, so maybe it was a sin, right? But it doesn't mean you're living in sin. And I just think that's such a tragedy when we say that. And again, there's so much weight around this because it's so deeply woven into our human nature. And there can be so much shame with that. And so we have to be really sensitive to that. So hope that helps at least bring a little bit of clarity uh, to this question. And again, there's so much more that could be said. Wish I could sit down one-on-one and have a conversation um, and really hear the context might be more helpful in that sort of situation. So hope that helps, though, give at least a little bit of a biblical perspective on that. All right, one last question. Uh, This comes actually from a 14-year-old, and the question is about predestination. What does, basically, what does John think about predestination? Well, here's what I think. The Bible teaches it. We have to understand what the Bible says about it, but the Bible does teach it. In fact, a number of years ago, I was sitting with a group of um, pastors and kind of Bible nerds from a variety of different theological backgrounds. Some from a more Reformed background who have one view of predestination. From Some from a more Arminian background have a different view of predestination. And we were sitting together because we were trying to create a document for a local Christian school uh, that would guide the teachers on here's what we can talk about and here's what we can say in the classroom on various theological and biblical topics since the school was interdenominational and intentionally so, people from all different backgrounds. Um, and so they had actually blacked out all the stuff in this document about predestination. And I said, you can't do that. You can't block You can't just black it out. You can't get rid of that because that just leaves it completely undefined and unclear. And it doesn't help the teachers in our particularly upper school know uh, what to say about that. The Bible certainly has things to say about predestination. So that being the case, what we need to do is we need to look at each individual passage that mentions predestination or uses other terms related to it, we need to look at each individual passage in its own context rather than, and this is what often happens, rather than import a predetermined definition and a predetermined theology of predestination and bring that with us to each passage where it's mentioned. What we need to do is try to understand each passage on its own terms 
and then from there say, okay, here's what this passage says, and here's what this passage says. But oftentimes that's not what the case. Um, depending on a person's view, whatever that view is, they will kind of bring with them into a particular text a predetermined view, and that that uh, that doesn't help. And the reason it doesn't help is because the Bible actually uses um, or discusses it in a variety of ways. Sometimes it talks about it individually. Sometimes it talks about it corporately. Sometimes um, it's dealing, in other words, dealing with a group of people corporately. Sometimes it's talking about, you know, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Well, that's fairly personal, individual, right? So we have to understand each individual text. Sometimes it talks about people being predestined, not to salvation at all, but to a certain task or a certain role in God's plans and purposes in salvation history. So we need to really say, okay, what does this passage say about it on its own terms? And when we do that, what we see is that when the New Testament talks about predestination for believers, here's what it usually, I mean, I'm pretty sure I could say this, like, here's what it, it's talking about. It, it talks about predestination to the results of faith rather than predestination to faith itself. I think that's really important. The New Testament doesn't talk about uh, unbelievers uh, being predestined to become believers. What it talks about is believers being predestined to certain results of that belief or that faith. So, for example, Romans chapter 8, the passage I just kind of alluded to a second ago, Romans 8 says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's talking about believers being predestined to ultimately, um, in in glory, become like Jesus himself, the complete and perfect image of God. We are going to be conformed back to the full image of God as seen in Jesus himself, conformed to the image of his son. Or another one, Ephesians chapter 1 says this, that, um, that we are predestined unto adoption. Not uh, unbelievers predestined to belief, but believers predestined to be adopted as his sons and thus, a little bit later in the, the passage in Ephesians 1, thus heirs. We get to inherit. Um, and so what we don't see, it, it seems to me in the New Testament, is we don't see certain unbelievers being chosen and predestined to become believers. I think that's the mistake that sometimes is made. What we do see are believers being predestined to the, to the outcomes and the goal of their faith. And so believers are elect in the New Testament. That is, they are God's chosen people and they are destined to adoption. They are destined to an inheritance. They're destined to be conformed to the image of Jesus and all of that. And so that's how I understand predestination um, in the Bible. Uh, I, I don't think predestination means choosing certain people to come to faith and thus be saved and leaving other people out. I think predestination in the Bible is more about what happens to believers as a result of being now part of the believing family. Now that they're in Christ, here is, here's what's going to happen to them. Here's what God has destined for them as believers in Christ. 
So there you have it. That's at least my view on predestination and how I understand the teaching of the text. All right, those were some good questions. I appreciate uh, those of you who sent those questions to me or asked me those questions via text. And I hope my, uh, my thoughts were helpful as far as they go here on the podcast. So thanks for tuning into this episode of the Bible in Life podcast. The Bible in Life is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. This ministry has grown to a point where increasingly I am needing help uh, with admin help and some of that. Uh, I've got a little bit of that in the works right now, uh, by the grace of God. The, as more funds become available, I can actually employ this person that I'm working with right now. Uh, more and more, they have more space in their schedule, more time. They have more ability. We just need more funds. And so if you want to join the team of supporters and help this ministry continue to expand and grow and be able to impact and reach more people, the easiest way to do that is to go to johnwhitaker.net. That is my website, johnwhitaker.net. Click the Give button. It'll redirect you to a page on World Family Mission site where you can then set up a donation to my ministry through them. And uh, those funds will be directed all to me. Uh, you can set up a one-time gift there, or you can give monthly recurring donations as well. So in advance, let me just say thanks a ton for your support. May God bless you for it. Now, I hope you have a wonderful week in Christ, and as you walk with him and seek him and serve him, may he guide you and lead you, and I look forward to talking with you again next week.